Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. How many of you would agree with me that life is just a series of decisions? Isn't it? It's just one decision after another, one choice to make after another. And sometimes, maybe not as often as we'd like, but sometimes certain choices are very simple. It's just an either-or decision. We're going to either do this or we're going to do that. We're going to either eat here or we're going to eat there. Now, sometimes those aren't easy decisions, but you have to make a choice. Or you do a progressive dinner, you know. We can't choose. We're just going to go to three different places and get appetizers, main course, and dessert. You know, maybe, maybe that's what you do. Uh, But there are uh, other decisions in life that are more nuanced. They're more complex, they're more complicated, and they're more difficult. And so sometimes you have to compromise in certain things, or maybe sometimes it's a good thing. Like maybe you can't decide for vacation, uh, do we want to go to Disney World or the beach? We can do both of those things, right? Either place, California or Florida, you can do both of those things. So it's amazing. So sometimes decisions are either or, but sometimes they are both and. So that's what we're going to talk about today in week two of this series, We Need to Talk. We are in a, uh, a series on the prophets of the northern kingdom of Israel. So at this point in the life of the nation of ancient Israel, the kingdom has split. There's been a civil war. There's now the southern kingdom that's called Judah, which we will get to in a few weeks. But right now we are looking at the time of the northern kingdom of Israel and really the prophets in that time period. We're looking at their lives, their prophecies, different things that they did and said, and so that's where we are. And today we're going to see that not only are decisions that we make sometimes both and, but we will see that God is both and. God is a both and God. We're going to go on a bit of a journey today, so you're going to have to try to follow my squirrel-chasing brain, okay, in the way that I kind of put this together to get to where we're going to go, because you may be like, this is not what you said. We'll get there. Just trust me. We will finally reach that destination. But as we'll see, not only are certain decisions that we make that are both and complex, but God is complex. God is multifaceted. God can't be simply categorized and put in one box. He can't just be one label. He is many things at the same time, and we'll see that today. As we look at two prophets from the Old Testament today, get a two-for-one this week, one prophet that we'll talk about second you probably are very familiar with, but the one that we're going to start with you may have never even heard of before. You may have just, I think I've heard of that name in the Bible or that book of the Bible, but I'm not sure. So we're going to look at these prophets and go on this journey to see what I'm going to call the both-and-ness of God today, okay? So the first prophet we're going to look at is the Old Testament prophet Obadiah. Maybe you've never even heard of that. He's real. It's in the Bible. There's a book named after him. It is unique. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only 21 verses long. So it's only one chapter. So when we read a few verses here and I talk about verse this and verse that, what chapter? There's only one chapter. It's so simple, okay? 
Obadiah is also unique in a, in a certain way that we'll get to in just a second. But we're going to see here the both and nature of God. So let's look at Obadiah, two verses here first. Obadiah 10 and 11, and these are the words of the prophet Obadiah. He says, Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. So Obadiah is an Israelite prophet, okay? But the question that we have to ask, we jump kind of in the middle here of the prophecy is, who is this prophecy directed at? Who is Obadiah, or who is God through Obadiah talking to? Well, even though Obadiah is an Israelite prophet, he's not prophesying to Israel. He's actually prophesying to a foreign nation called Edom, E-D-O-M. Now, this is unique, and the other prophet that we'll talk about today is unique in this same way. They only have prophecies for foreign nations. They are the only ones, as far as I know, that only prophesy to foreign countries. Many other prophets will prophesy to other nations like Egypt or Babylon or whatever, but they'll also have prophecy directed at Israel as well. But the, the, uh, Obadiah and then the other prophet we'll get to only prophesy, as far as we know, to foreign nations. It's very unique in that way. So what uh, Obadiah is talking about is many years... So first of all, let me say this. We don't know a lot about Obadiah. We don't exactly know when he lived or when he wrote. There's a, lot of, there's a wide range of debate on was he early or was he late. It seems like he's prophesying about something that happened in the southern kingdom that we're not covering today, but it's possible he lived in the northern kingdom. So a lot we don't know, but he does tie in with, with this idea of God being both and. So in 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem is completely destroyed by Babylon. It is burned to the ground, it is ransacked, there's nothing left. The, the main capital city of one of the, not too long in the distant past, largest nations in the world at that time, destroyed by the then superpower Babylon. So what happens here is Edom, who is a neighbor of Israel, they behave badly toward Israel in this time. And that's what God is talking to them about. Because you would say, well, why does God care about Edom? What's the point? Well, they behave badly about Israel, and why would God care about what Edom does or doesn't do? Why is he concerned about that? Well, the reason he's concerned about Edom specifically here is because Edom and Israel have a history. So before there was Israel and Edom, there was Jacob and Esau. So we're going to go back a little, again, we're going on a journey here. We're going to go back to Genesis and look at these two nations started with twin brothers, and so we're going to look at the story of Jacob and Esau here for just a few minutes to see why God is so upset with Edom. What's, why is he angry? Why is he going to destroy them? What's, what's his problem? It's because there's a connection here. So we're going to go back to Genesis uh, 25 and following and look at these brothers. So we go back to Abraham who started this whole Jewish sort of uh, project, this idea, and then his son Isaac, the son of promise, he and his wife, she becomes pregnant with twin boys. And here is what the Lord tells her while she's pregnant. Gives a very interesting word to uh, Rebecca here about her twin boys. Genesis 25, verse 23. The Lord told her, The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. Your older son will serve your younger son. 
When the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat, so they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. You ever had a disagreement with your siblings before? You ever like to fight with your siblings? Maybe you still do to this day. We see here Jacob and Esau, these twins, fought from the very beginning. They are literally wrestling in utero. I mean, you talk about morning sickness, okay? Rebecca's like, what is going This is not normal, you know? And God's like, yeah, your two sons, they are at war with each other right next. She's like, yeah, I can tell, you know? I can tell. Thanks for that memo, God. I wasn't sure what was going on. Even in utero, they're wrestling. Even in delivery, they're wrestling. Esau comes first, but Jacob is literally holding on to him. So Esau can always say, yeah, I'm the oldest, I'm the fir-, which will be important in a minute. Esau's like, I'm the firstborn. Jacob's like, yeah, by like half a second, bro, because, I mean, your heel, your heel came out with my hand. So we are, I'm right there on your heels, literally. So in utero, wrestling. During birth, wrestling. What's important here and what we see centuries later, over a thousand years later in Obadiah, is this prophecy from God to their mother from the beginning. God says there are two nations that will come from these two boys. They, will, they are and will always be rivals, and the younger will serve the older. It should be the opposite of that, unless I said it backwards. The older will serve the younger, in case I said it backwards in my head. Uh, the older will serve the younger. It should be the other way around, but that's what God says. So they're rivals from the beginning, and that continues on and on and on throughout their childhood and as they grow up. Let's skip to Genesis 25, verse 27. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac, the father, loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah, their mother, loved Jacob. One day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. He was hangry, okay? Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. So the initial problem here is that the parents have favorites, which is never a good idea. Even if you do, you can't tell your kids that the other one or that they are the favorite. So the parents should have been both and parents here if we're going to go with this theme. And they were either or parents, and that sort of didn't make this feud kind of dissipate. It made it even worse. So Jacob makes this stew. Esau comes in from a long day of hunting, famished, and he says, give me some of that stew, bro. And Jacob is maybe the first ever entrepreneur. He sees an opportunity here to take something from his brother. And so Jacob says, yeah, it's going to cost you. I'm not just going to give this to you for nothing. You got to pay up. And Esau says, well, what do you want? And Jacob's price for a bowl of stew is the birthright. Now, if you don't know what that is, the birthright is basically the eldest son. So Esau, based upon barely being first born, has this basically a double portion of the inheritance of their father. So the fir- being the firstborn son in ancient cultures is a big deal. It is not a small thing. And Esau now has upon him, by his birth, twice as much, basically two-thirds of the estate when their father dies. Yet the Bible says when Esau says yes to this price, 
he says, sure, you can, you, he basically gives him an extra third of their father's estate for a bowl of stew. So the scripture says Esau despised his birthright. That was the main problem we see with Esau here. His main mistake was he didn't value the right things, and he disvalued the right things. That was his issue. He traded long-term blessing for short-term desire. That was the issue with Esau, is he traded long-term blessing because of a short-term desire. So then some time passes, their father Isaac is nearly blind on his deathbed, so he calls in Esau, his firstborn, and says, hey, I need to give you the family blessing, the, basically the spiritual side of the birthright, basically conferring upon you, you're the man of the house now, you're next in line, you're in charge, you're the guy to take this thing forward. He says, go out and kill an animal, make me a meal, bring it in, and I'll give you this blessing. I'll pray this blessing over you before I die. So Esau goes out, and he goes to, on the hunt. Well, Rebekah and Jacob overhear what's been happening, and they scheme and they plot. That's Jacob's issue here. He's a schemer. He's a plotter. The name Jacob means heel grabber, like literally, but it also can mean usurper. So he is overtaking what is not his from his brother yet again. He tricked him out of his birthright years before, and now he's going to attempt to steal the spiritual blessing of the family. So they already have a meal going. Mother and Jacob here have a meal going. They're like, hey, we're going to make this meal really fast. They have some, some animal skins laying around. They put all over Jacob's body. He's going to try to, you know, have a lower voice. I'm Esau. <clears throat> he goes in the mirror. I'm Esau. Here, Father. You know, he's practicing his, his bass voice. And he, he does this. He takes the meal they've prepared with the skins and the hair on him, goes in and says, here, Father, I've prepared this meal for the blessing. And Isaac is like, that was fast. Wow, that, wow, you killed and skinned and, and cooked that thing so fast. Man, you're, I knew you were my favorite son, you know. And he doesn't, being blind and nearly dead, he doesn't realize he's being tricked. So he confers upon the younger son the spiritual blessing of the family. Jacob has tricked his brother out of the possession, physical, financial part of the future, and now the spiritual part as the future of the family. And Esau comes in not knowing what's happened. He's gone out all day, hunted, killed, prepared the, prepared the meal, brings it into dad and says, hey, dad, it's Esau, I'm here. And Isaac's like, no, I already did this thing. What, what do you, did you, is your memory going? Or what's the deal, you know? And he's like, no, I, I, I went and killed the animal and brought it. And then they, as they're talking through what's happened, they realize Jacob has tricked him. And he's obviously not happy. He's not pleased about this. And so here's what happens. Genesis 27, 41. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will soon be mourning my father's death. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, mother, Rebecca, hears Esau say this out loud like an idiot, you know. And she tells Jacob, you need to get out of here. Your brother is literally, he does, he's not just using a euphemism here. He's going to literally hunt you down and kill you. And so Jacob runs, and he runs, and he runs. And for over 20 years, Jacob runs from his brother Esau. He hides from his brother Esau. So a lot of things happen to Jacob in between here that if I had more time we would cover, but that's not the point. The point is he's running, running, running for over two decades. Then time passes and he hears wherever he's traveling with his new young family, your brother's nearby. And he's like, uh, this is not great. He's finally caught me. He's finally cornered me. 
But they, the brothers finally meet, and what happens is pretty amazing. Esau forgives Jacob. They reconnect, they reconcile, and they sort of kind of live happily ever after. Like they bury the hatchet. He's like, hey, what's done is done. God's going to bless you. God's going to bless me. It, you know, th- they let bygones be bygones, and their story kind of ends in sort of a, a happy way, in, in a manner of speaking. Now you fast forward here to Obadiah, and these, both of these brothers now, they have families and they have descendants, and both of them now become nations. Here we are probably 1,500 years maybe later, and now you have Israel from Jacob's line, and you have Edom from Esau's line. You have these two neighboring countries. And what we see over time is that the nations mirror the brothers' relationship. Let's look at how that happens. So first, we know the brothers wrestle with, with each other off and on. Well, Israel and Edom, we have in the Old Testament several times where they are at war. The nations are at war with one another. Uh, in, in Saul, in Saul's reign as king, you read a list of nations that Israel warred against. Edom is one of those nations. They wrestled even as nations a thousand years later. Even under King David, similarly, a list of nations that Israel fought against during David's reign. Edom is on that list. So they are still wrestling with each other a thousand years later, just like the brothers did. What we see here in Obadiah is, so just like Jacob stole stuff from Esau as young men, now when Israel has been ransacked by Babylon, Edom also steals from them. They sort of get their revenge, maybe a thousand years later, but they get their revenge. And we saw that in verses 11 and 12. Let's read verse 13 here. Obadiah 13 shows us more about this. God speaking again to Edom He says, you should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. So in the end, Edom, Esau gets revenge on his brother in some small way through Edom ransacking Israel. And it's really for the same reason. We talked about Esau valued the wrong things. He despised his birthright. He didn't really care as much as he should have. Edom also didn't value the right things. So when they see their neighboring country, Israel, being destroyed, they didn't value their shared connection. They didn't consider, yeah, we've been at odds before, but this big bad Babylon is bad news. And we maybe need to stand together and make a coalition here to rise against them. They didn't care. They didn't try. They didn't try to defend them. They didn't try to come to their aid. They didn't try to help them. They stood back and watched them be utterly destroyed. And then whenever they are destroyed, not only do they allow Babylon to just take and plunder and all the stuff, they enter in in that too. They didn't value this connection. They didn't consider their history or common ancestry at all. And it made things really messy. And then unlike the brothers that reconciled, we don't see that here with Israel and Edom. We don't see a happy ending for either one of these nations, really. Because Israel is already, uh, they're already in exile in a foreign land under foreign occupation of of Babylon. They're being judged. They're out here. God's dealing with them. And now because of Edom's uh, treatment, ill treatment of Israel, God is going to judge them too. And so sort of in this fifth, sixth century uh, B.C. or fifth or fourth century B.C. Basically, after that, there is no more mention of Edom anywhere in the history books. There's very little besides the Bible, but there is none after this. So God makes, makes through on his promise, on his judgment. And that's the first, again, we're going on a journey, that's the first 
really characteristic of God, of this both-and-ness of God, is God is a God of judgment. He's a God of justice, okay? That's the first of these both-ands that we're looking at. God punishes sin. He did here with Edom. He did with his people Israel, and he does with us today. He still punishes sin. God is holy and perfect and pure and righteous and sinless, and therefore, he must punish sin. He cannot be a just God, a righteous God, and allow sin to go unpunished. He is judge. He judges unrighteousness righteously. And the thing is with us, the way that we can maybe frame that a little bit easier to understand is God set up his world to work his way, and sin messes that system up. Sin puts a monkey wrench in the whole operation. Sin puts wrinkles in God's perfect plan. And so when he set up his world to work his way, and we want to go a different way, he has to deal with that. He must be judge. He must be full of justice. So God corrects when we fail to function in the way he designed. There's a price to pay for all of us in that. That's the first attribute or characteristic of God in this both-and nature of God is he is a God of judgment. But then we get to the second prophet that you might be more familiar with, and we, see, we do see this characteristic of God, but we also see the other one that we will see the both and nature of God. So the second prophet that we'll talk about is the prophet Jonah. And this might be a name that you are more familiar with, a story that you maybe have more familiarity with. Even though we are familiar with it, let's look at his story briefly, and then we'll get to kind of the point of seeing this second part of the both and nature of God. Let's start at the very beginning. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, we get introduced to this Old Testament prophet. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. So in a similar way to Obadiah, God has this message through Jonah to a foreign country, a foreign city. Nineveh is not in Israel. It is, he has to get in a boat to go there to get there, okay? So God has this message to an evil, uh, wicked foreign country. And there are um, extra biblical records of Nineveh. And they, I mean, you talk about... They were brutal uh, to the people around them. Uh, Child sacrifice was a common everyday occurrence in Nineveh. I mean, they were basically as wicked as you can get. And so for whatever reason, we don't even really know why. Jonah sort of thinks he knows why. God is going to pronounce judgment on Nineveh, and he asks Jonah to go there and do that. And Jonah wants no part of it. So he gets in a boat to go in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. While he's on the boat, though, God tries to get his attention, doesn't he? And he causes a storm to come up in the sea. And the men on the boat are like, hey, somebody's angered, somebody's God, because this kind of storm doesn't happen. And so Jonah finally is like, yeah, it's probably me, guys. I'm literally running from God, so it's probably my fault. So they throw him overboard. The storm stops. So Jonah was right. They picked out the bad apple on the boat. And as he hits the water, what happens to Jonah? He's swallowed by this huge fish. And he is inside of this fish for three days and three nights. And when you're inside, maybe you've never been inside of a fish before, I haven't either, but I would assume if you're in there with nothing but your thoughts and dead fish guts, you've got some time to think. So Jonah has some time to think here about what he's done that was not good, how he's displeased God, how he's disobeyed God, how he's running from God. So he repents of his sin and he says, okay, God, maybe maybe you've said these words before. If you ever get me out of this, 
I will now do what you wanted me to do the first time. Jonah has that moment. If, you, if I ever get out of this stinky fish, I will go where you want me to go and say what you want me to say. And so miraculously, after three days and three nights, he is spit up onto the shore. He gets in a boat and goes to where he's supposed to go, to Nineveh, and he preaches God's judgment and wrath upon this wicked city. The people respond in repentance to Jonah's message. They take him seriously. Maybe he even told them his story. Hey, I tried to disobey God, and look what happened to me. And God says he's going to destroy you, and he will. He is not messing around. They repent of their sin. The king rips his garment, which is a sign of great mourning and repentance. The king tells the people to go on a nationwide fast. Even, check this out, even the animals are told to fast. That's crazy. Like, who does, that's weird. Like, the people that own animals are told, do not give your animals food or water during this fast. It's weird. But they repent of their sin. There's a call to prayer. They turn from their wicked ways. And what does God do? Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what happens. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Now, this is good, right? This is awesome. This is great. Jonah should be like, God, you did it again. Wow, you're so amazing. But Jonah's not happy. So the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, here's what happens. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Then he says this, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And here's what God said to Jonah. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? So Jonah's attitude here reveals two things. His attitude reveals his belief in the justice of God. He's fine with that. He can grasp that. He's, he's cool with that. But if that's so good, why is God angry with Jonah when he comes to this realization, when he says, I, you know, I wanted this and destruction and you said wrath and I believe in that. That's great. Why is God angry with Jonah? It's because his attitude also reveals his displeasure with the second character trait of God, which is his love. That's the both and that we're looking at. God is a God of justice. He's a God of wrath. He's a God that must, must punish sin. But simultaneously to that, he is a God of love. Those two things do not seem to go together. That's why this is so difficult. That's why Jonah couldn't quite figure this out. He was all in on the wrath and destruction and judgment thing, but this whole mercy and love and grace thing, he didn't quite, it doesn't make sense. How can these two things, how can oil and water mix? It doesn't work like that. And I think that many times we know that God is both a God of judgment and a God of love. I think most of the time we know that, right? But most of the time we don't, we, we are more like Jonah, we see God as one or the other. We lean too heavy on one or the other, where God must punish everyone all the time for everything, judgment, or we think God will punish no one for anything ever. He's just love. It's not, it's not either or, it's both and. God is both of these character traits simultaneously. 
So what I want to do just for a few minutes is get kind of personal. I want to get real here. I may, I even wrote this down so I would make sure I said this, I may say some things in the next five minutes that will annoy you. I may say some things in the next five minutes that may offend you. And can I just tell you, that's the point. The point of what we're about to talk about and get really personal and real for a second is to provoke us to really think about the both-and-ness of God, not just in the Bible, not just with these prophets or these characters in a book, but in my life. How well do I see the both-and-ness of God's judgment and love simultaneously? It's not easy. So here, here's a few examples. Here's some questions to consider. Just a few things to get, to get us rolling, okay? Here's the first one. How much do you really love your neighbors? And I don't mean like Tommy and Cheyenne were our next our, our neighbors across the street for like three. I don't mean like awesome neighbors. I don't mean like kind neighbors. I don't mean amazing people. I mean that obnoxious neighbor. I mean the, and we've had this too, guy, the loud neighbor that bumps their music at 3 a.m., that has the cops at their house at least once a week, that causes trouble and problems. How much do you love that neighbor, right? How much do you love the nosy neighbor trying to get into your personal business, trying to maybe stir up stuff, trying to maybe cause some issues or trying to just be way too? How much do you love that neighbor? How about this one? What's your honest opinion about people who differ with you on social or political issues? How much personal hatred have you had with people that disagree with you on any number of social issues? Like you literally, I hate this person now because I know their politics. And it goes either way. It goes both ways with this. And this is where our country is just on the, on the tipping point of destruction is because this is what everything boils down to, is who you voted for, what, is there an R or a D next to your name, what, you know, what do you stand for, what do you believe in, how, how much does this personally affect us? It can be any number of things, uh, and I won't get into any, per- I, I have some, I'm, I'm not going to try to offend that many people right now in one sitting, but you know what those trigger things are where you can't stand that person now because they have this view about that topic. Well, I can't, that person is so different to me now because I know that they live this way or they accept these things. So we all have those triggers where we can go overboard or we can be on the opposite side where we just don't have any standards about anything anymore. Everything's fine, everything's good, God's, you know, so loving and forgiving and everything slides and sometimes we are, we need to go maybe the other way. What about this one? Here's a, oh, here's a big one. What do you think about Islamist extremist terrorists? What do you think about a group like Hamas that just from time to time randomly shoots missiles over into Israel and blows up a school or a hospital? I hope they get what's coming to them. There's a hotter place in hell for those people, right? But let me ask you this. How often have you prayed for those people? How often has your prayer not been, God, destroy them, but God, save them? Not God, give them what they deserve, but God, show them your mercy so they are not destroyed and consumed. It's not easy to do. What about this one? How do you view someone who keeps making the same mistakes over and over and over? 
What a screw-up that person is. What a waste that person is. How stupid can they be? Why can't they get their act together? And maybe it's even worse because you watch somebody mess up over and over and over and over and spiral out of control, and you're like, hey, you know what? I color inside the lines. I do my part, and I'm barely scraping by. Meanwhile, this ignoramus over here, they keep messing everything up, and they get chance after chance and opportunity after opportunity, and they're way better off than I am, and they've messed everything up. What's the deal? What's the disconnect? Maybe that's how we view people that make the same mistakes over and over. Here's the last one, and then I'll get off our toes for a minute, all right? How do you treat someone who has hurt you? Maybe you withhold forgiveness from them because they don't deserve it, right? What they've done, and I'm not saying what they did was right. I'm not saying what they did is, you know, not terrible. I'm just saying how we respond to that says quite a bit about ourselves, This is kind of gut check time here. Maybe you feel justified in your resentment toward them. You feel justified in those things that you thought that were so terrible that you would never even say them out loud. You would never even type them in case someone ever found that file on your hard drive. Like you would think these terrible things about these people that did terrible things to you. I hope someone gets them just as bad as they got me. I hope they get what they deserve. And you would think, okay, who are these terrible people that you're talking about, Stephen? Who are these awful people that would think that and act like that and treat people that way? Who would be so hateful and judgmental and unforgiving and unloving? And here's the danger. Here's the danger. The danger is the more righteous we are, the more holy we are, the more devoted we are, the more faithful we are, the more we're tempted to be like Jonah. It's not the bad people that hate their neighbor who who is obnoxious. It's the good person that feels that way. You see what I'm saying? It's not the bad person that hates that terrorist. It's good people that feel that way. But the problem is good people doing a bad thing does not make the bad thing good. A good person that's let rot get into their heart and their spirit toward their fellow man does not make that rot all of a sudden good. So we have to be careful. You may be in the right in sort of how you feel about that person or that thing that they did, but it doesn't mean that you can be wrong even though you're right. So what we see here is Jonah's way was not God's way. His attitude was not God's attitude. If we connect these two prophets for a second here, we see that Jonah's way was more like Edom, who's being judged by God for their attitude. So what they have in common is Edom to Israel, they kicked them while they were down. They added insult to injury to them. They laughed at their misfortune. They took advantage of them in a vulnerable situation. And Jonah does that, but what he also does is he looks for the worst in someone else, and he hopes for the worst for that person too. That's where Jonah's heart was, and he is a prophet called by God in the Bible, and he has this problem. He has this issue. And as hard as it may be for us to see, we have to see what Jonah failed to see, the both andness of God. He is a God of justice. He must punish sin. He is holy. He does have standards, but at the same time, he is a God full of love and compassion and mercy. They are both and with him. 
we see this in the New Testament. 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter writes this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the first part of that is, his promise is his second coming, his return. And when that happens, he will judge, the Bible says, the living and the dead. So when he comes back, that's pretty much it. If, you're, if you are with, within you know, the camp of those who believe, you're great. If you're outside the camp, not so great for you. So God will judge, or Jesus will judge when he returns. That's the promise. But at the same time, he is coming with a sword in his hand, with fire in his eyes, and he's not going to mess around. However, he is still the same Jesus that is full of love. The same Jesus who, as First John says about his father, God is love. God is a God of justice. He's holy, sinless, perfect, pure, righteous. He hates sin. He must punish sin, but he wants none to perish. You know what that means? Adolf Hitler. God wants none to perish. Osama bin Laden. God wants none to perish. Serial killers. God wants none to perish. Child molesters. God wants none to perish. And here's here's where this gets me, okay? Maybe you can relate. The more I think about the both and nature of God, the more convicted I become that I'm not as much like God as I'd like to believe, and I'm more like Jonah than I'd like to admit. Let me say that again. The more I think about the both and nature of God, the more convicted I become that I am not as much like God as I'd like to believe, and I'm more like Jonah than I'd like to admit. Maybe you can relate to that. What that means is I need God's grace. I need it. It's not just that the unrepentant, evil sinner in Nineveh need it. I need it. Like, I'm pretty faithful follower of Jesus, I would say, most days, okay? I need God's grace to help me not to fall into the Jonah trap. That's what I need. One more scripture as we close, and it's Matthew chapter 7. Jesus gives us some words sort of on this topic. Now, it's not directly to the point, and it's not even directly about the both and nature of God, but it is about how we can live out the both and nature of God. So Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says these words, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. So these words are, these words, first of all, are both and, okay? They are both challenging and helpful. These words of Jesus are both challenging and freeing to us. Let me show you why just for a second. These words are challenging because it is a challenge. Jesus is saying, do not do something. That's a challenge. You ever like, you take, I double dog dare you, you know? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I double dog dare you not to judge others, and if you're like me, I'm like, I'm taking that challenge, Jesus. You can't double dog dare me. I'm going to take, I'm doing it, you know. So it's sort of this laying this gauntlet down saying, I dare you not to judge others. I dare you to try it. That's what he's doing here. But it's also a challenge because it's difficult. As we've already talked about for the last few minutes here, I have standards and expectations of myself and of others. They are not always met, are they? You, you see that in your life? I have feelings and emotions that sometimes people trample on or they mess with or they, you know, rip apart. That's hard then to not judge people when they do that. 
So it's a challenge, but it's also helpful and freeing, and here's why. The question that we have to ask with Matthew 7 is why? Why should we not judge others? The answer is simply because we are not the judge. Simple answer, right? Now, we might think, no, 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 I, I get to judge them, and I get to, you know, weigh in the balance, and I get to compare, and it's like, well, Jesus says, do not do that, because that's not our, that's above my pay grade, okay? That's above my expertise level to judge every other human on the planet as much as I would like to sometimes. It's above me. It's not my job description. And so what happens is it's a lot of pressure to be a judge. It's a lot of pressure to think about what's right and what's wrong and how bad is too bad and how good is good enough. That's pressure. And so Jesus relieves me of that pressure when I don't judge others. He relieves you of that pressure of judging them, of running the world, when we just say, he's the judge, not me. It's time-consuming to judge others to keep track of all their good deeds and bad deeds and if, you know, what category they belong in. Are they as good as me? Are they better than me? Should I, should I beat them down for that or should I elevate them to, you know, rock star status for how good they are? It's just, it's just tiring. It's time-consuming. So if we take Jesus seriously here with not judging, what I suddenly have now is way more time to work on me instead of everybody else. What I have now is more focused to, to give myself the attention that I need in my life, in my spiritual journey, in my own growth and well-being, and not have to worry about the other 7.5 billion people on the planet. Jesus does that. I don't have to worry about people's opinions or their shortcomings or their hang-ups because I can then worry about mine, and that's way more important. So Jesus' words help us to see the both-and nature of God and the importance of it. But then his, what we're going to celebrate this coming week, this holy week, his life, his death, his resurrection is an example of this both-and-ness of God in action. And this is where it really helps us to reset if we get off track too much like Jonah. Here's, the, here's what's important. We can see that to all of us, God is also both-and. And it can be in a couple of different ways. But here's the thing. I, like everybody else in the room, everybody else listening today, I deserve God to be a God of judgment to me. But what God did is he showed the loving nature that he has by judging someone else for me, namely his son Jesus. On the cross, in that moment, God is being both and. He is judging my sin on the cross and in that way showing his love to me. I would much rather experience that than be like, well, God loves everybody here and now, and then later I find out what his judgment really is like. That's a much better trade-off that I can then have Christ be judged in my place to extend God's love to me. So this hope of salvation and forgiveness, what hopefully we experience is what we would want everyone to experience. The justice of God through Jesus to express the love of God through Jesus. I hope this revolutionizes maybe the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world, the way that we interact with other people, that God is massive, he is beyond compare, he's beyond categorization, because he is a both and God. Let's pray. God, I pray today that you would help us to see how great you are, your complexity, uh, we can't put a label on you or a title on you. You exceed all of those things. You are both and. So God, help us to not be like Edom 
and kick people while they're down or take advantage of the, the underprivileged or the unfortunate or those that are in vulnerable situations. Help us to defend those that need defending. Help us to be there for those that need our help. Help us not to be like Jonah, to think the worst of others and to hope for the worst for others, but help us instead to be like Jesus, to be more like your heart that says, yes, there are standards and there are expectations and there is a way and there, there, are, there is sin and it must be punished, but yet, but yet God is a God of love. Help us to see that and experience that through Jesus and then to try as best we can to live that out, this both and nature of God. It is not easy. It is a tightrope walk to do, but we can do it by your strength, by your power, and through your wisdom to see, experience, and reflect the both and nature of God. So I pray that you would uh, bless us today as we put this into practice and bless this time for the next few minutes as we baptize some people who are going public with their faith. In Jesus' name, amen.